Okay, so we're in Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. How's everybody doing? Good. I'm glad you're doing good. Um, Let's pray. Father, we've come in here for, I can't even guess how many reasons. Um, Some people have come here tonight, and they have questions, they have doubts about whether or not you exist or what you're like if you do exist. Some people have come here because that's what you do. They grew up going to church, and they just keep going to church, and no one's told them they can stop. And so they keep showing up. And some people here tonight, God, um, they're here because they don't know where else to turn. So God, I pray that you would come through the words of Solomon, you'd speak. Um, That you would crush all attempts to manipulate you and control you. That you would um, unveil eyes tonight to see you and your perfections and your goodness. That, That you would make us aware again of the pervasiveness of sin in our own hearts. And God, I pray that you would um, proclaim to us tonight through this text the unparalleled good news of the gospel. pray that you'd use a text like Ecclesiastes to do that tonight. And so God, come, speak, move us, transform us, and change us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Um, We have been in Ecclesiastes now for a few months. Um, And up until this point, Solomon has been driving home one central and essential point. And that point is that if you're here tonight and you want joy, and by joy I mean something lasting, something um, immovable, a a rock 
um, that you can take hold of and, and, and root a life in. That if you want joy, if you want something that, that's eternally weighty, that, that has significance, that's not just a passing fog or a phase, if you want something to build a life on, something to, to root all of life in, you're not going to be able to do it by trying to find it and take hold of it and control your own life. So good luck. Um, his point over and over and over again has been that, that whether you're looking to finances or a job or success in the right job or the right spouse or enough sex or a big enough car or a big enough boat or a big enough house, whatever the thing is, all of those things basically amount to a, a, an attempt to shepherd the wind. It's, it's taking fog and trying to make it what you want it to be, and it's trying to steer your life and control your life, but in the end, you're not going to build anything of substance. If you are really good at smoking a pipe and making smoke rings, eventually the smoke ring is going to disappear. The God, and, and secondly, that, that has happened, and it's, and it's in place that way because God has made it that way. Really frustrating, this Solomon guy. That in the end, he has bent the universe in such a way that, that if you search under the sun, so anything in this life, and try to use anything under the sun, anything in this world, um, to, to try to use to take hold of joy, to, to secure significance, or something that will last, or, or in the end, it will all turn to vapor in your hands. And God's the one who's designed it that way. Um, and so he is heralded over and over and over again that, that, that the one who rules the universe, the one who appoints times and places, uh, the one who has bent the world the way he has, um, the, the one who actually runs things is not you or I. We're not sovereign. We don't get to control things. We don't get to steer the course of the universe. God steers it. God is the sovereign one. And so he ended, where we ended last week was verse 14, which we read tonight. And I just wanted to get it out in front of you again. And it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, you don't control what comes after you. And if in your life right now you're experiencing adversity, Solomon's word is God did that. And if you're experiencing prosperity, God did that. And so he's presented us with this fact. God runs everything. Okay? That's all of Ecclesiastes up until now. So if this is your first week, don't feel like you missed anything. You now understand the first seven-ish chapters of Ecclesiastes. But that raises a question, right? A really important question. I mean, if I'm not in control of the deal, if I don't get to create my own prosperity and create my own adversity, maybe I could somehow come up with some way to leverage God. I'll illustrate it like this. We have three amazing, beautiful children. Someone laughed. They are. They're amazing and beautiful children. And, um, and they have come at this point in their life, the two of them are six and one of them is four. Um, the six-year-olds are twins. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, they have come to realize that they do not control their own candy destinies. So for them, 
candy is the vapor. <clears throat> it is the thing they want. It is the thing they want to take hold of, um, particularly, well, all three of them, really. Um, and, and so they've, recognized, they've come to the point of verse 14, recognizing if I receive candy, God, via mom and dad, have done that. And if I don't receive candy, adversity, God, via mom and dad, have done that. I'm not sure they've made the connection between mom and dad and God yet, but they know that at least mom and dad are the ones who say no. Um, and there is, beside my desk, a drawer that Jenny now knows about. Um, <laughs> and in that drawer are various candies. Right now, there are um, white chocolate Hershey's Kisses with cookies in them. You know what I'm talking about? Amazing. Um, and there's also, there was, I threw them out, um, <clears throat> there were gummy bears. The gummy bears had become not as gummy as they once were. They were hard. Um, like I could throw them and you would sue. Um, <clears throat> and so um, everyone else in the house, and now everyone in the house, um, knew about this candy drawer. I'm sure my wife knew. She knows everything. But now you know. But I threw the Anyway, okay, and so um, a pattern ensued once my children realized that candy was there. Um, and in the morning, I would wake up, go downstairs, sit at my desk, read a little bit, pray a little bit, think about my day, have this wonderful, holy, alone time with God, and, um, and then my children would join me. Um, and the children would come up, and they had three very, very different ways of approaching the exact same concern and question. So... <clears throat> Molly, if my head was turned, if I was in a different part of the house, if I'd gotten up and gone for a walk outside, would, for that moment, ignore, possibly, the authority invested in me as her father, open the drawer, take some candy, based on the fact that back in the past, I, I let her have candy, and so now she's probably allowed to have candy, and so she takes the candy, she closes the door, and she walks away. Okay? Ignoring. Not good. Second way. <clears throat> Molly does this as well if I'm in the room. Um, Hayes does it often. He comes down and behaves perfectly. <laughs> he'll start picking things up. He'll actually offer to take my trash out. Um, he, uh, seriously, um, he'll offer to take Dan's trash out, whose office is the next one over. He um, will sit quietly with... Molly does this too. She, he'll pull a Bible off the shelf and he'll sit on the couch and read the Bible every once in a while looking at me. <laughs> Good morning, Father. I am reading my Bible. Can I get you some coffee? And so um, sitting very, very carefully. And then at some point, I know it's going to come, and, and um, usually after about six and a half minutes, um, <clears throat> he will get up, walk over, and say, Pat me on the shoulder. But not just like a tap, but like a pat. Like, brother, father. <laughs> Dad, I remember the, the candy that you let us have? And he says it exactly like this, and he's six. Remember the candy that you let us have like a couple days ago? You know, in the drawer? The really good ones? Can I have some of that? <clears throat> and then there's Carson, who's learned none of these tricks yet. And she will come down. Um, jump on top of my desk or ask me to put her on her desk. She can't quite jump that high, but she will ask me, hey, can I sit up on your desk? And then she will look at me and not stop asking, can I have candy? Can I have candy? Can I have candy? 
later. Because my answer is always, a little later, a little bit later. Then she'll wait a couple seconds and say, hey, Dad, can I have some candy now? <laughs> and, and Solomon wants to confront the reality, the very real reality that all of us approach God that way. That once we've acknowledged that there is a God who rules the universe, that there's a sovereign, in fact, he would, I think, go as far as to say that all of us inherently know this. Even the, the most ardent atheist among us would, would, that inherently, maybe subconsciously, may be buried under all kinds of layers of rational arguments against it. All of us know there's a God, and if God has the name God, then he has to act like a God, which means he rules everything. Which means we don't have control. If prosperity comes to us, we didn't earn it. We didn't get, gain it for ourselves. If adversity comes to us, then, then, then we didn't bring that. We don't have control over these things. And at the end, God brings these things. And so is born the whole idea of religion. If we can't gain joy by our own hands, by collecting enough money or having enough sex or getting a big enough house or succeeding enough in a, in, in, a, in a good enough job or raising kids perfectly enough or having the perfect kind of marriage, if we can't take it by our own hands, maybe we can come up with some sort of system, some way of leveraging God's sovereignty, leveraging God's control. And in essence, we all come downstairs and we sit on the couch and we pull out our Bibles and we think for those 30 minutes, for those six and a half minutes, or, or maybe it's not sit on the couch and read the Bible. Maybe it's if I recycle enough, or if I do enough good deeds, or if I'm nice enough to people that are weird and I shouldn't have to be nice to. If I, if I do whatever the list or the thing is, somehow then I can leverage God and I can get what I want from Him. God becomes Daddy sitting at His desk with a drawer full of candy. And if we can just figure out the right code, the right buttons to push, the, the right way to organize our life, the right set of morals or rules to follow, or the right purpose for our life, if we can get whatever that thing is, if we can find the secret, the secret code, the secret prayer, the secret pattern of life, then maybe Daddy God will give us what we want. So Solomon now turns to confront Righteousness. And so he, he begins, right? He begins by saying, in my vain life, I've seen everything. Uh, an observation that many of us have probably seen. He says that, look, he, he's, he's beheld a righteous man who dies in his righteousness. And a wicked man who lives a long time in his wickedness. And so he just looks out over the world like he's done over and over and over again in this book. And he makes an observation that most of us, I'm sure most of us have seen, right? That a good man, a really good man, dies young. Not all good men die young, but, but um, I think it's a song, isn't it? Only the good die Okay. Um, but we begin to see that, that, that somehow being good doesn't earn you a long life. You can't use your goodness or use your good deeds to add up and somehow present them to God. And he says, okay, you've met the quota, we'll give you another three years. Or for me, another 10 years, 15, 25. Um, and, and the men and their wickedness, God doesn't just strike them dead. Like you've met people, maybe you have, I've never, I'm very merciful, but, but maybe you've met people and thought, why doesn't God kill him? 
I mean, he's wicked. And, and, and yet God doesn't. He just keeps living and living and living. <laughs> and God doesn't kill him. And, and, and I mean, I just was, was running through a list of names. There's uh, some of the, the greatest preachers and theologians ever. I mean, and I, I think of them because I'm a pastor. Um, but Henry Scogel died when he was 27. Pastor, he wrote um, a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. We're, we're going to do men's boot camp in a few months. We do, we do it twice a year. And we're going to read that book together. That book sparked the first great awakening. Very few books have been that impactful. Can you imagine what Henry Scogel could have produced had he lived to be 70? I mean, he wrote the book that, that George Whitfield, the Wesleys, um, they, they attributed their, their salvation to this book. David Brainerd died young. Missionary to the Indians. Um, Jonathan Edwards said he'd never beheld godliness as he beheld it in David Brainerd. Speaking of Jonathan Edwards, he died getting an inoculation shot. Mm. It caused you to be a little afraid next time you get a shot. Young, in his 30s. I mean, this is a reality that surrounds us, right? Evil, wicked men live to a ripe old age. And where we think, maybe here, maybe God will reward this person with long, long life. They die in the 30s. And so Solomon makes this beginning observation, and he's going to begin to expound this observation and tell us a little bit about it. But right off the bat, he wants us to know, just from the get-go, um, if, if you can't take hold of it by force, then somehow doing righteousness, however that word gets defined, doing enough good deeds, it's not going to buy you more time with God. It's not going to buy you prosperity from God. It's not going to buy you um, what you want, or, or maybe just... All the, your dreams of what your life could look like. If I just do all the right stuff, God somehow is testing me. And if I can make the right choices and not turn left when I'm supposed to turn right, not linger too long looking here or doing this or drinking the wrong kind of beer or whatever the thing is, as long as I do all the right stuff, then maybe, just maybe, God will give me what he owes me. And vice versa. You can't look at a wicked man and say, just wait. God is going to zap you. He's going to shoot a firebolt from his finger and destroy you because you you did that thing one too many times. And I leave that thing vague for you to define. And then in the end, um, the righteous may die young, the righteous may live to a ripe old age, um, the wicked may die young, but they might live to a ripe old age. So neither one gains you something with God in terms of life under the sun. You cannot control God through your righteousness, through your good deeds, through your collection of good works. God doesn't owe you anything. So then he gives us this strange command in light of this. And we had uh, a couple of us get, a, get together on Tuesday mornings to talk about the text we're going to preach on. And we had a um, vigorous discussion about this phrase. And so I hope you will have a vigorous hearing. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> verse 16. You need to see this because it's in your Bible and you can use this. 
Um, particularly if you're young and you're still under the care of your parents. If you're a teenager, you can quote this verse to them. <clears throat> Be not overly righteous. That's interesting. So tonight, I want you to walk out and think. Brian commanded us, don't be overly righteous. Don't be too good. Is that what it means? I guess Solomon commanded us, hey, don't do too many good things. Because if you do too many good things, then you're just a fun killer. So be just a little bit wicked, but not overly wicked. And do some good stuff, but not overly good stuff. So kind of live in this nice, healthy middle Having fun, but not too much fun. Doing some good, but not too much good. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Um, so what does he mean? Be not overly righteous. And he goes on, he says, don't be overly wicked as well. And don't be overly foolish. And so he seems to be maintaining, hey, don't, don't go too far that way and don't go too far that way. But, but there's two things, two um, illustrations in the text that I think kind of illuminate what these mean. He gives two examples of of what this kind of thing looks like. And the first one is very, very telling. I'll get to the second one in a minute. I'm leaving it for later in the hopes that I'll run out of time. So we're going to go with the first. The second one has to do with the ensnaring woman. (laughs) Sorry. So I'm avoiding that one. So the first one we're going to start out is when he says this. He says, um, look with me. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. (laughs) Your heart knows that many times you have cursed, you yourself have cursed others. So combining two ideas, and I think they'll help kind of shed light on each other. On the one hand, the command. Trey, in the front row, second row, be not overly righteous. Point one. Point two. And in light of being not overly righteous, don't, Take to heart all the things that Eric is saying behind you, about you right now. <laughs> so what kind of over, over-righteousness would lead one to take to heart all that Eric is saying about... So let's, everyone look at Trey and Eric. <clears throat> Eric's talking to his wife about Trey. Um, saying mean, grotesque things about him. And Trey is taking it to heart and fuming. He's crying even. Sorry, I thought he'd be angry, but he's crying. <laughs> so what's going on in Trey, if Trey's being overly righteous, that would lead Eric to say, it lead him to respond poorly to Eric's criticisms? I, I think it's attaching your identity to, it's believing that somehow you've earned something or gained something that can allow you to hold your chin up high, that you're somehow better than other people around you because you've been righteous. So in other words, I don't take overly righteous to mean don't do too many good things. Don't be too morally upright. I think he's saying don't use righteousness in a particularly particular kind of way. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction? So in other words, I don't think um, Solomon is saying, go every once in a while just do something bad. Go like ring the doorbell in somebody's house and run away. Just kind of keep some immorality in there. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. 
I think what he's saying is in the way that you're righteous, don't do your righteousness in such a way that that if, if you hear someone criticizing you, if you hear someone talking badly about you, that the kind of righteousness or the way that you're righteous or the way that you're doing the good things leads you then to respond in a way that you take those things to heart. Which I take to mean that you're somehow using your righteousness to leverage God, to leverage others, to find kind of those roots. If I can just be good enough that I'm something solid and who is he to question me? Who is he to rip on me? Who is he to criticize me? I think most people, when they hear Christianity, when they hear the call to be converted, to believe the gospel, to come to Jesus, what they hear is a call to do what Solomon is explicitly telling us not to do tonight. They hear a call to moralism. A call to do enough good works that you can be seen as being on God's team. And then he'll give you the stuff that you want. Particularly heaven someday. Solomon wants to destroy that tonight, and I want to destroy it tonight. God cannot be leveraged by your good works. And I think all of us are tempted to live this way, to think this way, to, to act this way. Um, to, and, and it comes up when someone criticizes you. Or you think that, that someone doesn't look at you with enough esteem... Or or, or maybe somebody maybe thinks you're not quite the father that you should be or the mother that you should be or the pastor that you should be or or the type of person who's good enough, who measures up. And and then we can't help it. I mean, sometimes we we fly out. Maybe some some of you, you get really angry in those moments. Or if you're like me, you just, you find yourself constantly not able to escape the conversation, just constantly in your head having the conversation over and over and over and over and over again, somehow wanting to find a way to prove to them that you really are a good person. I promise, I'm not a jerk. And so you find yourself constantly, like tapes going off in your head, that you constantly go back to it. I think for most of us, the Christian religion at its root is simply a, a, a fancy, nice, organized form of moralism. A way of earning something with God, a way of leveraging something with God. And it takes all kinds of different forms. There's religious moralism. So if I read my Bible enough and I pray enough and I, and I, and I um, carry tracts in my back pocket and I can hand them out enough, if I um, pray before a certain number of meals, um, if I memorize Bible verses, if I, um, if I go through the right rituals and I say the right prayers and I, and I go to confessional or whatever the deal is, but we create religious forms and somehow these forms, these practices, doing this kind of thing somehow earns you something with God so that I can, I can gain something with it. If I can just do this enough, then I'll get what I want from him. But it doesn't always look religious. Sometimes it looks very hipster. 
There's a hipster moralism. It's my favorite kind. <clears throat> and it involves um, recycling enough and being kind enough and never being mean. Never, ever, ever be mean. And, 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 it, 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 and driving a Prius and, um, and, and driving the right things. And if I can just be in tune enough with the earth and in tune enough with, with niceness. And if I can just kind of measure up over here by doing all the right kind of things this way. Whether it's driving the right car, wearing the right clothes, thrift, stop, thrift store but not the wrong thrift store. If I can just do the kind of the right measure up things, if I can oppose the war violently enough, and if I can, if I can just, we're bombing Libya, let's, so whatever the thing is, if I can just rally around um, this set of morality, this set of ethics, this set of practices, that I'm on God's team. And you have preachers preaching hipster moralism. Saying the gospel means you get to partner with God in making a better planet and healing all the broken places. And I'm not against healing broken places. Please hear me on that. But when the way that you get God on your team, the way you join God, the way you become one with God, the way you um, um, get right with Him is by partnering with Him, by doing, doing anything, by coming up with a list of somethings, it's over, overly righteous. There's southern moralism. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. And don't talk to people who do. And then there's hippie moralism. Dreads, less showers, lots of hair. It's, it's a list of stuff. There's professional moralism. If I can advance enough in my career, if I can garner enough respect for my coworkers, then I'll have achieved something that, that gains me leverage with karma or nirvana or, or, or God or luck or whatever the thing is. If I can just do enough good things and add them up, then I'll have leverage on whatever name you give to God. You cannot leverage God. And his first example here is the easiest way. Because people are talking bad about you. To make you all neurotic. Right now, someone is talking bad about you. Someone's, someone's here talking bad about me. Um, the, 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 the easiest way to test that, and you need to test it. Uh, one of the things that Luther said, we put this on your little handout deal. Is the default, uh, the default condition of the human heart is not irreligion, it's not atheism, it's religion. And we may give a different name to God. We may do something different with however we define the word God. Um, but in the end, it's trying to earn something. It's trying to prove something. It's trying to garner enough somethings. Be it religious practice or irreligious practice or um, um, professional success or a good enough looking family. That's the default. To try to prove something. Leverage something with Him. And the easiest way to test it. It's just to overhear someone say neg something negative about you. Maybe mild criticism. Maybe they didn't even mean to criticize you. Maybe they just, maybe your husband really did think that it, it would have been a little bit better with more meat and cheese in it. <laughs> I just got to look. 
Um, maybe, maybe they they really love you and they, they just they, they want to say, hey, like, if you if you would do this with the kids instead of um, going and laying down on the couch, maybe it's a perfectly rational, helpful comment, but you become unnerved by it. Am I the only one who gets unnerved by that? You know why that's there? Because you've rooted your identity, you've rooted your worth, you've rooted everything in how well you do whatever that is. You have a list. And you think by doing those things enough, you earn something, you gain something, you, you, God owes you something, or maybe other people owe you something, but look what I did, look at my list, look at my thing. Solomon says, don't be overly righteous. Now, don't mishear him. He's not saying, go, therefore, go be wicked. He goes on and says, uh, and don't be overly wicked either. Um, he says, don't, don't become a fool. <laughs> but don't think that somehow by gaining wisdom and insight, theological prowess, <laughs> or, or doing enough good things and becoming righteous enough, somehow you are, are now owed something by God. You're owed something by your friends. You're owed something in this life. You need to know right from the get-go that, that wickedness, wickedness will destroy you and being overly righteous will take you to the exact same place because both, both are attempts to ignore, distance yourself and leverage God. And in the end, I think this is the heart of the problem. Um, Hazel Motes, Dan, the drummer, pulled this name off the internet for me. He's a character in Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood. Um, I couldn't remember his name. <clears throat> um, Flannery O'Connor's one of my favorite authors. And she says this about Hazel. The boy didn't need to hear it. This was moral correction for Hazel. He didn't need to hear it. Why? Because there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Isn't that beautiful and terrifying? That if I can somehow be righteous enough, I won't have to deal with God. All I'll be owed from Him is a good life, a good career, a good family, and all the joy I want. But at its root, just trying to avoid God. Um, those who pursue wickedness Molly, when she comes in to get the candy when I'm not there, <laughs> it's kind of harsh to call that wickedness. We'll call it, well, whatever call it, whatever you want. Um, this attempt to avert God's authority, to somehow just kind of do whatever you want, to ignore the fact that he's there. That, that, that part's pretty easy to see, right? It's easy to see where, where if, if that's kind of how you're living, you're just ignoring him. Uh, you're ignore, by definition, you're ignoring him. <laughs> you're, you're keeping him at a distance. You're keeping his authority, his rule, his reign in your life out there somewhere so you don't have to deal with it. But, but sometimes we, we tend to think that if, if, if we're doing enough, then, then, then somehow that's, that's exactly what God is owed. And so, how's that avoiding God? It's, it's treating him out here. That somehow, if, 
we sit at a business table with him, if we can bargain, if I can give him enough stuff on the table and he'll give me what I want. So I'll give him what he wants. He give me, gives me what I want. But God, God doesn't want to be your business partner. He is your God. He is your Father. I, I want Hayes to come down the stairs and sit on the couch because I'm his dad. I want Hayes to read his Bible with me because he likes pictures and he likes to read the stories with me. I want Carson to come and jump up on my desk because she gets to sit with me for a while and be with me for a while. And yet we use righteousness to get the candy in the drawer, treating God not like our Father, but keeping Him at a distance. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It's, it's um, an absolutely amazing book, and I would encourage all of you to read it. Um, it's, it's the story of his early life and kind of leading up to um, ultimately ends with his conversion, um, the, the story does. But, but his, um, he, he talks about how, he, his, how tenuous and, and weird his relationship with God was early. Uh, as a young boy, he felt like God was this, this kind of demented overlord who he needed to kind of make happy by doing enough confessions and, 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 and doing enough of the right things and keeping him happy somehow. And then he came to realize that if God was there, he's sovereign. He rules the universe. And so he, what he wanted most was to not be meddled with. He was kind of the kid who liked to sit in the corner and, and not be bothered. And so he became an atheist, not because he found no evidence for God, but because, actually he didn't become an atheist, he became an agnostic, because he didn't want to be troubled. He didn't want all of the complications that, that came with admitting that there's a God, and if there's a God, it's the God revealed in Jesus, and the God who pursues us like a hound. He didn't want to be meddled with. And my, my concern, my prayer for us this week has been this. I'm afraid that some of us are here, and maybe even the, the impetus for you coming tonight was for one more week you wanted to keep God off your back. You, you, kind of, you know he's there, there's no, you, you know maybe you've admitted the fact that there's no avoiding him, but you don't want him meddling. You don't want him involved in all the little details and messes of your life. So, so you come here and that kind of gets you the distance that you need. It gets you the leverage that you need. You can kind of throw up your hands and say, hey man, leave me alone. I, I, I did the stuff that you want. And maybe some of you have realized that that doesn't work real well. And so you've started adding kind of different rules there or different ways of keeping God at a distance. And so if I do the right stuff or I say the right prayers or I, whatever the thing is, whatever the list is, whatever the overly righteousness thing is, you begin to use that as a way of keeping God kind of over there. And I want you to stop it. Solomon goes on to describe the other thing. Um, I'm going to get to it because I'm not out of time. Um, the, the, the other thing that, that can happen. And um, he, he talks, it's kind of out of the blue, right? So maybe I should just say it goes with something else and we'll move on. Sure. <clears throat> he said that he's found something more bitter than death. <laughs> 
and it's a woman. I'm sorry. Um, and I found something, verse 26. I found something more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is... I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible where it makes very clear gender distinctions, and this is... It does here, but I don't think it's just the fact that there are women who are evil. <laughs> I think there are men who are evil too. Okay. So there, let me off the hook for that one. <laughs> but there's a kind of overt prideful confidence that comes when you think you're self-righteous. So a certain kind of relationship or a certain drifting of the heart that that you can engage in and so that you can... um, I'm not going to be corrupted here. I'm not going to be led astray here because in the end, man, I'm I'm righteous. I'm going to lead them to righteousness. And I've seen it. (laughs) I've seen it play out with two, two really, really good friends of mine. One was a guy and one was a girl. So, it works both ways. Well, there was such confidence in the self. Such a feeling that, that I'm righteous. I can walk. I'm walking with God. I, I have everything figured out. I've got my life in an order. And so I'm going to pursue this girl. Maybe she's... Maybe there's some question marks there. Maybe there's some... And by question marks, I don't mean that she struggled with sin. Okay? I'm not, I'm not holding up and saying, hey, don't, don't go with someone who's, who's a worse sinner than you. That would um, play right into the metaphor that Solomon's trying to confront. I'm talking about a woman or a man who, they don't love Jesus. They don't recognize sin. Maybe that's the big piece. So you're walking and you're thinking everything's great and everything's fine. And this guy's thinking everything is perfect. This is the girl I'm going to marry and his life was destroyed. I think Solomon's point here is that, that, that being overly righteous, somehow um, collect, viewing life as a collection of good works that I can leverage God or leverage karma or leverage whatever the thing is that I want with, that, that, that creates a certain kind of pride. A certain kind of arrogance that walks through life not understanding that there are bear traps everywhere. A certain kind of like, I don't have to be wary of my own heart or my own flesh or my own sin or where my own life might go. If I've got all of these good deeds, I'm good enough, God owes me enough, and, and I'll be taken care of enough. So you date the wrong guy, you date the wrong girl. And they don't see the world the way Solomon sees the world and the way the Bible says that the world is. And you're ensnared. So what's the answer? Okay, Brian, you just told me I I shouldn't be overly righteous and yet I shouldn't also be overly wicked. So what's the right answer? Where's where's the path to life? How how do we get out of this kind of bind? What's the way forward? It's the same thing that Solomon said again and again and again. Verse 18. 
It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. I think he's talking specifically about, hey, don't try to create all these new rules where you don't touch that, you don't drink this, and you don't listen to that, you don't do this. No, it's good. Take, enjoy the life that God set before you. Not in sin, but take hold of. Don't withdraw your hand from, from good things, good gifts from God. Don't create extra rules. Why? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So, the answer Solomon says to an overly righteous heart is to fear God. Some of you are saying, wait, 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 wait. You stuttered as you said it. Wait. If, if I really fear God, then I'll obey Him. I'll do everything that He says. I'll, I'll work extra hard to make sure that I don't do all the wrong things. Not this kind of fear. Because if you actually fear God, if you recognize, as Solomon says, every time he fears God, it's tied, every time he uses the phrase fear God, um, it's explicitly connected to this idea that God is sovereign and huge and holy and unmanipulatable. So the answer is to see God as he is, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, better than, better than you thought. Unmanipulatable. You can't put enough pile of good works on the lever to kind of make him lift up or stand up and do what you want him to do. He's bigger than that. He's more glorious than that. The beginning answer to this is not, oh, I'm going to fear God and therefore I'm going to try to measure up. You're going to, if you actually see him for who he is, if you begin to fear him for who he is, you're going to stand in absolute awe and you're going to toss aside your good works, realizing they will never measure up. You can never do enough good stuff to earn something from him. Your righteousness is filthy to him. You can never make him love you. And once you get there, you'll realize you need grace. Which is the only way to come to God. I want to end in Romans chapter 3. See if you have a Bible, flip there. Solomon said in the text that there is, as he looks out, that, that one, no one, no one is righteous, no one is sinless, no one is without blemish before this God. And he goes on later to say that, that, um, that God has made man upright, but we're always looking for schemes, we're always looking for some way to manipulate him. And then we turn over to chapter 3 and we get to verse 10, 10b. Okay. Um, we get to 10b, and we find Paul now is coming to kind of his summary statement as he's observed mankind. He's done the exact same thing in these three chapters, kind of, that Solomon has done Ecclesiastes. He's looked at and scanned all of mankind, and here's his assessment. Hipster morality wouldn't work for him. He's not very nice. None is righteous. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God, at least the God who is there. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's translation of Solomon. <laughs> and he looks out at the world and said, there's no one righteous. There's no one who fears God. There's no one who pursues God. There's no one who can get God to do what they want because they haven't earned it. They can't earn it. But then he turns and in three verses he says this. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So Paul completes the thought of Solomon. And this is where we want to end tonight. If you've come here tonight or you find yourself in your own life, a place where if I can do enough, if I can be moral enough, that I can get God to do what I want, Solomon's call is to fear him, fear God. And maybe you've begun to touch the fact that there is a God, so maybe I should do something to kind of appease him. Solomon's word is stop, you can't. Fear God. Maybe there's someone here who are ignoring God. You're pretending or living as though he does not exist. And so you're just excelling at wickedness. Fear God. If you're overly righteous, fear God. If you're overly wicked, fear God. And ask him for mercy. We end at the table where we end every week where mercy was purchased for us, where grace was bought for us. That Jesus Christ came and in his death paid the penalty for all of our unrighteousness. So that all who would hide in him, all those who would cling to Jesus and say, he is my only hope, his righteousness is the only righteousness I can lay claim to, that that all those who would hide in him, that the wrath of God, that the anger of God against sin would be poured out on Jesus instead of being poured out on us. And that all of our unrighteousness would be put on him. And then here's the amazing piece, that, that God's righteousness, the righteousness that belongs to Jesus, the righteousness that we lack, would be placed on us like a cloak. That, that we would be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you would hide in him for mercy, we invite you to come forward tonight and to take the bread and dip it in the wine and partake of this meal with us. And if not, maybe, maybe you still have questions. We would love to talk to you about your questions. Uh, but I would, I would ask you to not come forward, not receive this meal, to sit in your seat and and think on the reality of God. Think on the depths and the reality of the gospel. And I would plead with you, be reconciled to God. Believe this message and receive life. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you died for us. We thank you that your righteousness is the only righteousness that saves. We can't earn anything. We can't leverage anything. And so, God, I pray that, that those who are chasing wind and pursuing vanity through some form of moralism, I pray, God, that tonight they would stop and they would turn and believe in Jesus. And God, those who, who have bought the lie that Solomon explored for the first six chapters, God, that somehow if, if I can pursue enough wickedness or if I can pursue enough stuff or, or, or the right circumstances in my life, then I'll have joy, then I'll have life. God, I pray that they would stop. God, that all of us would fear you, all of us would stand before you with eyes open and keenly aware that apart from grace, we have no good thing. And so come and open eyes and circumcise hearts and convict us of the reality of sin, the need of grace, and the gift of righteousness. Amen. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and eat. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, all you have to do is ask for mercy. And then come and eat.